Hey everyone, my name is Will Malice, and I'm an assistant news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus serving the community since 1890. And this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Monday, February 10th, but this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So we're in the studio with me to recap the stories we have covered over the past week of the rest of the news team, if you want to introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Catherine Eston. I'm assistant news editor. Sophia Gardner, assistant news editor. Irina Kostake, assistant news editor. Cassie McGrath, assistant news editor. Cool. So um, for our first story this week, um, this is about the recall hearings for um, SGA President Timmy Sullivan that uh, Catherine and Sophia, you guys both covered? Yeah, so it was two nights, Thursday and Friday last week, total of just under 12 hours. I think we came in about 20 minutes under the limit. Uh, It's a story we've both been following for a couple months. Uh, It was kind of exciting to see it kind of come to an end. We're going to have a final answer within the next week or so. And basically this started back in end of October. I think it was October 31st we came out with the first story on it. Uh, So anyone who hasn't been following along this season, uh, basically there were some questions over how funds were allocated during uh, Timmy Sullivan, the SJ president's last term. Um, A whole investigation was conducted. Uh, They found out he broke a few bylaws. And there was a question of, you know, bylaws get broken pretty frequently. Was it ethical or was it unethical? And he was ultimately impeached by the Senate because they believed that the bylaws were broken unethically. And it went to a hearing in front of the judiciary. And each side, the Senate and... Uh, Sullivan and who his judicial advocate was, the attorney general, uh, each had a chance to debate their sides, interview a few witnesses. Uh, and then the justices are now, they've made a decision, we know. By Monday at 12.18 a.m., they had a decision. So sometime in the next five days, we'll get to hear about that. Yeah, so there's three possible outcomes that could come out of this. Either the justices will make a majority vote, which could either be that they vote to remove Sullivan from office or they vote to not to remove Sullivan from office, or they will not be able to come to a majority decision because there's only six justices right now, so it could go half and half, and in that case they don't take any action and Sullivan would stay in office. And what's kind of interesting about this case specifically is that there hasn't been an impeachment trial before um, in the SGA history, so whatever comes out of this case is going to serve as precedent Um, for any future impeachment hearings in the SGA. So there was a lot of talk about what to do and the weight on that because it's going to be the precedent for any further impeachment hearings that happen in the SGA. Yeah, I think that's really interesting on your point about it being like a precedent. It seemed like, you know, from um, from reading your article that one of the major issues, even beyond just like, the like issue of the allocation of money it seemed much of the issue was the process of the impeachment and how that went down and um i think sullivan's team kind of mentioned about if their due process was was met and um and stuff like that which is really interesting also um at the beginning of uh of the first session it seemed like even then it was going to go to like a mistrial in the first 20 minutes which is pretty interesting because um and if, if i'm wrong Um, feel free to correct me, but I think it was because the petition didn't have the exact language of the articles of impeachment that were brought by the Senate. Yeah, so there's been a lot of debate over logistical things like that. There's actually a lot of debate over what the judiciary's role in the recall hearing itself was. Um, The debate was rather if the judiciary 
should be ruling on the validity of the case and if Sullivan should be impeached for his actions or if they were just ruling on if the um, subcommittee that investigated Sullivan followed their bylaws and if the Senate um, followed the bylaws in terms of the vote and impeaching Sullivan. I think it's really interesting and the fact that it's so close to the end of the term too because I think elections start in like a month or so-ish, maybe even less than a month. So it's just, yeah, it's interesting to see if this is all happening and then he only has a couple, like having only a couple weeks left to finish his term. It'd be kind of a little sad, a little ironic to see if he does get removed from office right before he would finish. Yeah, it's kind of amazing this has been going on for 100 days, we realize, mm-hmm. because it started at the end of October. Um, and if he were removed from office and that happened, since it is the first time, we don't actually know how that would go down. Would they wait until the next SJ meeting? Would it be a formal thing? Would it be automatic and Speaker Ellis automatically becomes president? Nobody's really sure as far mm-hmm. as we know. Um, but Speaker Ellis you know, would have to give up her... S- status as speaker which i believe she keeps until the end of semester not just april 1st Mm -hmm. because new senators aren't elected until the fall so i think it would be also hard for a few people in those positions of you know she's gonna leave uh, the legislature which we had interviewed her before uh, winter break and she said that she had no interest in being executive that she preferred legislative and that was why she was speaker and to see her kind of pulled from that she'd serve as president for one month and then just be out of the sga for the rest of the year unless she could of course find a senate seat get back to the Senate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just, I am curious to see, I don't know if they'll tell us, but I'm curious if um, the fact that it is so close to the end of the term is going to have to have any influence on if they choose to remove him or not. Um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about how this trickles down to the rest of the SGA and the rest of campus. And maybe this is like a really ironic silver lining where people become a lot more aware of the SGA's existence and ultimately will have more of a say in their student government. Maybe more people will come out to vote and things like that, which obviously this issue is much more nuanced than, oh, maybe it could be a good thing in the end. But just I've had more people asking about the SGA this year than ever before, which is something I think um, this case has brought the SGA's uh, to a lot of people's attention. And I think also from reading like the really thorough and amazing work that Catherine and Sophie have done, a lot of questions of things that like maybe like were left out of the trial and things that were um, bigger debates that between the people involved that we probably don't consider as serious, like the little nuances in the, um, the writing of whether or not it was the same. So I think it will be really interesting to see how in five years the SJ will look back on this and view it as something that was a good thing or not for them um, and how that will affect the rest of the student government and the student body and maybe even the administration. I can definitely already see the effect on the SGA. It's definitely spurred a lot of bylaw reform. I know AA is working to reform um, election bylaws and also I'm pretty sure that after this they're going to be taking a look at the impeachment bylaws because they're not super specific and that's caused a couple of issues during this trial. Yeah, and then kind of to say how a lot more students are aware of the SGA now, uh, something that was brought up during the trial in different ways was the culture of the SGA. You know, um, Timmy Sullivan brought it up saying uh, the SGA focuses too much on financial issues, too much on bylaws and not enough on uh, big projects like his administration focuses on. Uh, other people said the SGA overlook so many things and they're not as transparent as they should be with students. 
Um, and I think another argument might have been the SGA doesn't uh, keep in touch with regular students, that they're so mm-hmm. focused on, you know, acting like another student group that's isolated to its members that they don't get out enough. I don't know where to stand on any of those issues, but I think this case, regardless of what comes out of it, uh, definitely exposed that that's a debate that's still going on, that the culture of the SGA is something a lot of people have issues with, but we haven't really resolved at all. So I'd be interested to see, you know, five years from now, what's the SGA going to be like? Do you guys know exactly what the role of the president is? Because that's something I think that a lot of people aren't really aware of, is this impeachment hindering um, President Sullivan's ability to get things done? And what projects is he working on? Do you guys know? I I know a couple that he's been working on. A big one was uh, accessibility for food. Um, So he helped develop a new meal plan. I think we covered something on that last semester that a new meal plan was introduced to stop food insecurity or lessen food insecurity. I don't think it stopped it. His administration's at least spoken out a lot. I don't know if it's an exact project they have uh, about dealing with racism on campus because there's been so many racial incidents mm-hmm. in the past few years. So I think it's a lot of, not to reuse the word culture, but a lot of um, cultural things going on on campus and talking about you know, what's affecting students on a day-to-day basis. I think, I'm not sure if it's recent, recent, but I think that at least for his first term, he did focus a lot on sustainability on campus and like the the campus's policies towards um, yeah environmental action. I'm not sure. I've heard a lot recently, but I don't know. Yeah, we do have the sustainability slammer coming up this week, <laughs> which we look forward to an article being written on, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just one last thing. Everyone that has no real connection to UMass or like... Um, prospective students and parents and whatnot who I've talked to are so shocked about this impeachment and always tie it back to what's going on in the country. I'm sure you guys have heard that like a million times. I feel like it's kind of newsworthy um, to like look at that connection between like Trump's impeachment and the impeachment on our campus and just how this will go down in UMass history. Yeah, I think I told someone this story the other day, but as a political science major, it's very strange to me that I know far more about this impeachment than the one going on in the country. Like, I didn't watch anything of Trump's uh, hearings in the Senate or whatever was going on over there, but I sat for 12 hours watching a hearing at UMass. Mm -hmm. Like, I've been following this for months, and now I know so much about it. Yeah, people will mention the impeachment to me, and they'll just say the impeachment, and I automatically think of Timmy Sullivan, and I don't think that that's what they're referring to. Cool. Uh, So for our next story, um, uh, this is an article that you wrote, Catherine, about um, kind of UMass's handling of coronavirus. Yeah, so this is another story kind of related to national news, except UMass's focus is actually related to the national story. Uh, So coronavirus, we don't have any actual diagnosed cases out here in Amherst. I believe there's two that they're monitoring over at Smith College, but that hadn't come out yet when I wrote this article, so that should be an update soon. Uh, So if you haven't heard of coronavirus, it was declared a public health emergency of international concern by the World Health Organization at the end of January, Uh, and UMass has been reminding students that they want to keep a close eye on it. Uh, You know, in our time here at UMass, we've seen outbreaks of other diseases like meningitis, Uh, so even though the risk is very low in Massachusetts, it's still something that UMass is very concerned about and they're keeping a close eye on. Uh, and there was also a diagnosed case of the first in Massachusetts at UMass Boston. And I think a lot of headlines, when people read that, they thought, oh, it's the whole UMass system or UMass Amherst, which is the bigger of the five schools, six schools. How many do we have? It's Lowell, Amherst, Dartmouth, Springfield is the medical center, and Boston. Mm-hmm. So five. Uh, so 
the UMass Boston Chancellor sent a letter informing them that the member of the community that had coronavirus had just come back from Wuhan, which is the area in China where the most outbreaks have been happening and where the most diagnoses have come from. And I believe as of today, there still isn't any case from somebody who wasn't in contact with someone from that region Mm -hmm. or who had been traveling through the area beforehand. But I thought it was interesting to see that UMass is taking, being very aware of this uh, and that they're also mentioning it in conjunction with the flu because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they give out flu vaccines on campus. They make sure that that's something students are aware of uh, and that that's probably a much higher risk to everyone right now. I think also um, part of how um, the student body is reacting to coronavirus is students who are looking to study abroad in China. I know that some people are affected and unable to study abroad in China because of the outbreaks. Uh, Yeah, all five colleges that had students planning to study abroad actually canceled those programs. Uh, So UMass had seven students that were supposed to leave next month. Uh, None of them are going. And then a few of the other colleges either had people just going or had them going through other schools' programs, and those were also put off. And there are a few UMass grad students and faculty that are abroad right now. Uh, but they've all been in contact with the university, and nobody's been diagnosed. I wonder how they're handling with those students, um, like fixing their schedule or like mm-hmm. making sure they can graduate on time, and um, also like they probably already paid for the mm-hmm. semester. Right. So I wonder how they're kind of dealing with that. Uh, as far as I knew, they had offered them the opportunity to either join other study abroad programs, which I'm sure must be disappointing if you're, especially if you were someone that wanted to go to China for a specific reason mm-hmm. to have that put off. But uh, their other option was to come back to campus. And since this announcement was made before ad drop, uh, they would have been able to get into classes here. Or I'm sure they would have made exceptions even if it was after that point. I remember someone in one of my classes last semester who was looking into study abroad in Hong Kong and because of the protests there was unable to. So I wonder how frequent that this happens and the university puts out or puts limitations on where people can go. I think it will be interesting to kind of look at how UMass is reacting to the two possible cases at Smith, because that's in Northampton, which is only, what, 20, 30 minutes from here? And I know, Will, you're doing a story on that. That will come out next week, I think, so that will be good to look for. Okay, so for our last story, um, Irina, you wrote an article on um, a new sexual harassment task force. Yeah, so um, it was announced on the 22nd of January, so two weeks just ago, um, that Chancellor Subhaswamy is creating a new task force um, on sexual harassment and assault on campus, um, and it's a collaboration between the university and the National Ac- Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine's Action Collaborative on Preventing Sexual Harassment, which is a very long title. But yeah, and it's going to be meeting, I believe, twice a semester, Um, and mainly their tasks are going to just be making recommendations for improving campus services, policies, and practices that all relate to sexual assault on campus. And they're also going to be mainly focusing on graduate students and postdoctoral students on campus and how they are affected by sexual assault and harassment, which I thought was very interesting, and I reached out to the task force to try and get more information from them on to why that was their chosen um, demographic of focus um but I didn't actually get to hear back so unfortunately I didn't get a lot of information on that but yeah it was just interesting because when you look at statistically I think that undergraduate students are the ones who are usually the most affected um so I am working on another article kind of a follow-up just kind of related um from the student undergraduate student perspective to learn about what other groups on campus are doing to focus on these policies because I think they're very they're very important to know about and to get addressed so in the article I also included 
some information about the policies that UMass has now on campus, some of the different departments or groups that work to um, respond to incidents of sexual assault and harassment, um, and I also included some of the most recent data from the annual security reports from the UMPD about assault and rape on campus. On the point about like um, how they're only starting off looking at graduate students mm -hmm. and postdoctoral students, I wonder if that will like, maybe they're doing that at first, mm -hmm. to kind of have a more, maybe like a smaller group to look at, and then um, and maybe they'll expand the process later on to undergraduate students. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I definitely agree. I thought that was interesting reading that. I hope so too. I hope that they do um, expand it further because I think that, you know, th they obviously shouldn't just be looking at undergrads. I think it's kind of actually a good thing that maybe they're focusing on a group of students who might not have gotten the attention before as much. Um, but I hope that there is like actual concrete change that can come from this and grow from this. It's interesting to me that it's... Um, postdoctoral and graduate students too because I think generally and I could be wrong about this but I think that population tends to live off campus more mm -hmm. so if this task force is looking at specifically on campus assaults and harassments um, it's an interesting decision to focus on postdoctoral students and graduate students so I'm wondering how they're going to deal with that once they get into the task force. I agree that I think this is something um, it's good to see the university taking a step to combat this issue, which I think is a really big issue on our campus and something that people tend to kind of push under the rug and not talk about traditionally administrators. I think we don't really hear a lot about the statistics of sexual assault on our own campus, and I think we have a right to know how safe we are. Um, so I'm glad that they're taking steps, and I think this is the beginning of something, and I hope to see them do more. Just to jump back to what Sophie was saying before about how most of the graduate students or postdoctoral students live off campus. Um, when I did include the security report, um, the security report statistics, um, it said that out of the 23 incidents of rape, 16 occurred on campus. So the large majority of them happened on campus. So I'm curious if, I mean, I think we know that for the most part, these numbers are underreported, um, but just like how wide of a difference there is of who reports if they're off campus and if it's more of a if it's a greater issue than we even realize based on these numbers. Very cool. So to end this week, uh, we're going back to our weekly segment where we look at a previous issue. This one is from uh, February 10th, 1984. So just on the front page, uh, one of their top stories is about SGA. So it's good to know they were still covering SGA even back then. I think it's interesting that there's an ad that says um, Northeast Area Government is holding elections for Vice President and Treasurer because I don't think that the specific areas, um, residential areas on campus, have their own governments. So that's something that's interesting to me, and I wonder why we stopped doing that. Mm -hmm. I think they do to some degree, but I don't think it's as powerful as it might have been in the 1980s. Because mm -hmm. I've heard people talk about area government. But I think they're more, they organize between the residence halls rather than campus-wide competitions. Yeah, when I was in Orchard Hill, we had a, like a residential council, I think. But I didn't really like know who they were right. or ever, ever met them. So I, it, I don't think it's as, maybe as big of like a part of like residential halls that it was uh, back then. I thought it was interesting to see a page on black affairs because that's not a section we have at the Collegian anymore. Uh, and I know people have talked about bringing it back in some degrees in the past. At an alumni event a few years ago, people you know, asked why it's not there anymore because there also used to be, I don't think it was called it, but women's affairs, you know, looking at focusing 
uh, on specific groups on campus and making sure that news and op-eds uh, focused on those groups came out. So I, th I just thought that was interesting in that, you know, this isn't a section of collegiate history I look through a lot. Mm -hmm. And to kind of think, you know, what if we brought that page back, what kind of things would we be reporting on? And are we addressing those communities' issues and stories? And I hope we are, but I think that's really cool to keep in mind. It looks like there's an article, it's called Reagan Plays Roulette Again, about environmental policies, um, which I think is interesting because that's something that obviously we're still dealing with in probably even a higher capacity today. But on a lighter note, there's also, um, it looks like an ad that says UMass Ski Club goes down to Fort Lauderdale for spring break. And they're advertising for the trip in the paper, which is something that's kind of foreign to us. Like, I think that's something to just post online now. Um, and just thinking about, like, how we're all ready for spring break already three weeks <laughs> into the semester. I'd like to go to Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely interesting that they use a lot more, like, event, like student events, like, ads for, for those type of events. Where I feel like today we just have maybe, like, an outside, like, company might have an ad or two mm -hmm. we definitely don't have as many ads as they have there's also a big valentine's day focus just one last thing on the sports page a special night in the cage helps you mass to victory before the mullen center where the basketball team used to play their games so now it's just it just stood out to me i think cool so um i think that's all the time we have for now it was great having everyone listen tune in next time and once again i'm will malice i'm katherine eston I'm Sophia Gardner. I'm Marina Kostake. And I'm Cassie McGrath. And you've been listening to the Collegian News Hour. The music for this podcast was created by Joaquin Carood and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.